Hello everybody, my name is Paul O'Halloran from uh, Dentons and welcome to our IR Insights uh, webinar for August. I'm really pleased today to have a special guest, Trent Hancock from uh, Jewel Hancock Lawyers. How are you, Trent? Very well, thank you, Paul. Thanks for having me. No problem. So, Trent, this is a, a webinar that I've wanted to do for a long time to ask all those questions that myself and my clients have always wanted to know about plaintiff lawyers, about why employees might bring litigation against their employers, uh, the no win, no fee model, all those kinds of things that are probably keep me and my clients up at night and get some of your insights into what, what are the current topical issues um, for employees out there in employment land at the moment. So. For our listeners, we've got, uh, well, I've got 10 uh, probing questions for Trent and Trent has confirmed that he's happy to answer um, anything within reason, uh, unrestricted, undiluted. And so it's gonna be, I think, a fascinating discussion. So I really appreciate your time today, Trent. So we do have a Q&A box for those listening. Uh, think of your questions as we go through. Um, and I'm looking forward to the discussion. Um, before we get started, we might just do a welcome to country. Nangamalari, I'm Auntie Manya, and on behalf of Dentons and everyone here today, I would like to recognise the stories, traditions, and living cultures of the land on which we meet. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and their continued connections to land, sea and community. And we pay our respects to elders past and present. Nangaman Ladi. Okay, so um, Trent, often don't see you in, in a collaborative forum like this, often might see you on the end of correspondence that one of my clients have received or on a, on a MS Teams hearing or, or in a mediation. Um, so nice to have this uh, more open uh, dialogue with you today to learn a bit more about your practice, uh, which I understand is going really well. So what can you tell us about um, your practice with employees and um, your firm, Jewel Hancock? Yeah, well, the firm is led by myself and my colleague, Andrew Jewell. We uh, spent 10 years together at another firm in Melbourne representing employees as well. Uh, kind of had our own ideas about how we wanted to practice the law, so we went away and established Jewel Hancock. Uh, been operating for about three years now and probably grown a little quicker than what we anticipated, so we're a team of seven now. Uh, we describe ourselves as a, a full-service employment law firm that acts exclusively for employees. So that means we, we don't complete any work for employers. Uh, we don't have any union affiliations. So we try to remain kind of as independent as we can and clients seem to, to value that quite highly. Um, so the bulk of our practice comes from individual employment claims. So we handle a lot of unfair dismissal and general protections claims, uh, handle a lot of contract disputes, uh, sexual harassment claims, underpayment claims, workplace bullying claims, and so really anything that might impact an individual employee at work. Uh, two areas that we don't practice in, workers' compensation and collective bargaining disputes. So we leave those to the personal injury lawyers and the, uh, the unions. Uh, but other than those two areas, we kind of do our best to help clients, you know, regardless of the situation they're facing at work. 
Um, and for that reason, we have quite a diverse client base. So we act for everyone from casual crew members at McDonald's to uh, senior executives uh, at ASX listed companies. So in my mind, that variety helps keep things quite interesting as well. Uh, believe it or not, we do act for a, a lot of lawyers and a lot of HR practitioners. Um, I'd say we probably have more than 100 lawyers or HR practitioners as clients each year. Um, actually, just prior to joining the webinar, I was in a consultation with uh, the head of people and culture at quite a large organisation. Um, and sometimes, you know, we've been opposed to those people in matters and they've then experienced their own employment law issues that they need assistance with. Um, or other times they've just found us online. Um, but they're always a bit of fun to deal with. Uh, they can usually provide us with uh, a pretty good insight into some of the other firms that we deal with, some of the companies that we deal with more regularly as well. And um, so I guess in essence, we kind of deal with the full scope of uh, employment disputes and the, the the full scope of employees as well. Yeah, interesting. And as I always say, it's always good to know a good employment lawyer on both sides of, uh, of the fence. You never know when that might come in handy. Um, Trent, is it possible to say is there one particular area of law that is um, perhaps the, the the dominant area that the firm tends to focus on unfair dismissal or I just keep seeing general protections coming up all the time so my perception is that seems to be really popular with employees but um, that might just be my my view. Yeah dismissal related claims is probably the bulk of work that we do um, in terms of a, say, a split between unfair dismissal matters and general protections matters, we probably do a lot more unfair dismissal work than we do in the general protections jurisdiction. But I'd say that's, yeah, that's probably the core of the work we do, termination-related claims. Great. And what are some of the cases that um, your team's worked on that you're most proud of? Yeah, look, there's a few that, that stand out for me. Uh, there's two in particular, though, that... Uh, I led to hearing uh, just immediately prior to uh, establishing Jewel Hancock. Uh, the first was an underpayment dispute that uh, we had in the Federal Circuit Court. That went to hearing in uh, July of 2020, I think it was. Um, the applicant in that case was uh, working in a factory, predominantly just on the process line making banana bread. Uh, he was working you know, six to seven days a week, ridiculous hours, you know, 80 plus hours a week. Um, he was paid as little as $8 an hour, and that was in cash when he first started employment there. So, you know, significantly below minimum wage, no overtime, no penalty rates, no superannuation. Uh, we had fraudulent payslips being created as well. Um, so perhaps the worst employment conditions I think I've ever seen. Uh, the poor guy even developed arthritis in his fingers just from the, the kind of repetitive nature of the work that he was doing and just how much of it he, he was doing. That litigation ended up taking four years. And we were dealing with a, a particularly difficult company director and an equally difficult manager who handled their, their bookkeeping and their HR. Um, and they largely denied wrongdoing uh, the whole way through up until the point of the trial. I mean, the director initially said he had uh, no knowledge of workplace laws, that he didn't know what a model award was and didn't know what minimum rates of pay were. Uh, we were ultimately able to uh, subpoena some records from the Fair Work Ombudsman, though, and that included a, a recording of a telephone call where uh, the manager had actually called the Fair Work Ombudsman for advice uh, and had been told some years earlier what the what an award was and the applicable rate of pay. 
Um, and she was actually joined as a respondent to those proceedings. And then once that happened, it was very quick to admit, well, yes, yes, we did know what modern wards were. We knew what the minimum rate of pay was, but nevertheless continued to underpay that person. Um, and the company refused to participate in negotiations that a couple of different firms acting you know, went into liquidation at one point and then immediately phoenixed into a, a new entity operating from the same premises, same employees, same work. And um, so it's fairly competitive litigation, I guess. Uh, but ultimately, we were successful in establishing, I think, about 15 different award breaches there. Um, and our client was found to have been underpaid $150,000 in the end. Um, and, you know, this was someone that had been working for years on end at less than the minimum wage. She was a recent migrant to the country. And he'd maxed out multiple credit cards just to survive. And I think was living in a, um, a house with several different families and just one of the nicest and most generous clients I think I've ever dealt with, but unfortunately, one of the most poorly treated clients that I've, I've dealt with as well. So, you know, it was pretty rewarding to, to get that outcome for him. And the other case that stands out was a general protections claim, again, in the Federal Circuit Court. And again, that was one that worked on for a few years. It finally went to trial just a couple of months after I'd left my, my previous firm. Um, and our client in that case was found to have been dismissed because she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, so it was a pretty horrific dismissal uh, for obvious reasons. And the evidence uh, of the discrimination in that case was, was pretty overwhelming. Um, it included, believe it or not, a, a separation certificate that had been authored by the director, which confirmed the reason for the dismissal as being the breast cancer. And, um, you know, this wasn't an inherent requirements case. Uh, our client was still working there at the time. She'd applied for some paid personal leave uh, to have some surgery and some treatment, but uh, was sacked for, for that very reason, found to have been sacked for that very reason. And I think the sad part for me about both of those cases is we had two very vulnerable and very deserving clients who had to spend two to four years in litigation to get an outcome. And it was simply because we had difficult and perhaps better resourced respondents on the other side. So uh, rewarding cases to work on, but um, in one sense, quite quite sad cases to have worked on. Yeah, that's extraordinary. I mean, we obviously, with our clients, see situations where, um, you know, the client always thinks they're doing the right thing and has made the right decision with a legitimate um, dismissal, but it's... Um, perhaps uh, looked at, viewed differently through a different prism by the, the, the employee who might filter it through a sort of a general protections type, type framework. And we're sometimes baffled as to how, um, you know, it comes out the other end or something that it's not. But these cases that you're talking about are very, very clear, deliberate breaches of workplace laws. And I wonder why the Fair Work Ombudsman I guess they're limited by resources in terms of what they can take on. Yeah, we're sometimes quite shocked at the, I'll call it the lack of interest in the ombudsman to, to prosecute some of these claims. And I think you're absolutely right. It's just a lack of resources. I mean, the ombudsman is, I feel, very effective in recovering underpayments uh, when they do prosecute. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars that the Fair Work Ombudsman is recovering in underpayments each financial year, so it's a significant undertaking. 
Yeah, but yeah, we have perhaps some smaller instances involving only one or two employees that have been underpaid. And I think it's just a case the ombudsman doesn't have the ability to um, to resource it. Mm, sure. So, uh, Trent, we're quite um, often fascinated by the, um, the no win, no fee model, um, which may or may not operate in your firm. You don't know, you'll let us know. Um, and how that is uh, sort of leveraged in terms of, of lit litigation that our clients might have to defend. Um, what can you tell us about the no win, no fee model and how that applies in an employment law context? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think some of the examples that I've just run through provide a really good insight into how the no win, no fee model works. I mean, I acted for all of those clients on a no win, no fee basis that I've just spoken about. And I think without that, none of those clients would have been able to afford to, to litigate. Um, and I know that no win, no fee model gets a, a bad rap. And um, we often have opponents speak quite disparagingly about the fact that we might be operating on a no win no fee basis on a, a particular matter but in my view it's fairly critical in providing access to justice you know we're dealing often with people who have been significantly underpaid um, or people that have been unexpectedly dismissed and have no source of income or even people that are suffering from some pretty significant mental health issues at times so i think giving those people an opportunity to have their claims heard is is quite important. So uh, I'm a really big proponent of, of no win, no fee work for that reason, um, but also because it helps keep uh, employers accountable. Uh, I know that may not be a popular opinion in, in this webinar, but in my view, if employers feel they can underpay workers or unlawfully dismiss them and, you know, there won't be any consequences because the employee can't afford to contest it, uh, we have a real imbalance of power there. Uh, and it is one that can be very easily exploited. So uh, in my view, the no win, no fee model helps level that playing field uh, a little bit for uh, a more poorly resourced employee. Um, as to how it works in practice, uh, within our firm at least, uh, you know, we'll meet with the client and usually ask ourselves at least two questions. Now, the first is, does the client have a claim with a reasonable prospect of success? Uh, and are the client's expectations around that claim reasonable? And if the answer to each of those questions is yes, usually we're prepared to work on that no win, no fee basis. And we get hundreds, if not thousands of inquiries, though, who act on the no win, no fee basis every year. We probably knock back, I'd say, at least 50% of them, either because we make an assessment that that client doesn't have a reasonable claim to make or because they tell us at the outset, you know, I want a million dollars for my claim and, and nothing less. And that's just not a reasonable expectation that we can work with. Um, and we're in a fortunate enough position where we can tell those clients that we're not uh, prepared to act for them. And uh, some of them don't like to, to hear that, but uh, there's nothing worse uh, as an employee practitioner than being shackled to a client on a conditional cost basis when you know, they don't have a claim and their expectations aren't reasonable. So we we certainly do try to filter some of those clients out uh, as early as possible. Um, and usually we're only acting on a, a no win, no fee basis for dismissal-related claims um, or claims for, for unpaid entitlements. Um, so there needs to be some form of financial outcome at the end from which our fees can then be, be deducted. So, you know, wouldn't be acting for a client in say, a workplace bullying matter on a no-win-no-fee basis, given there is just no financial component there at the end. Mm. And ultimately, all the model means is our fees become payable only if there's a successful outcome. 
um, and a successful outcome is essentially a decision in our favour at trial or an offer of settlement along the way that the client wants to accept. And it does mean that, you know, we can run a file uh, for two years and not get paid for any of the work that we do on it. And um, so making that assessment early that we do think, you know, the client is reasonable and has a reasonable prospect of success is, is pretty critical so as to not be caught up into a claim that won't come to fruition. Um, but when we do offer that no we no fee service to a client, we'll we'll see it through to the end. Um, we uh, will back them in. We've made that call at the outset. So, um, yeah, important to get it right. Yeah, interesting. And I, I guess it's frustrating when you have a have a win in that situation, and then the employer appeals the decision. And I guess a new is that is there a new assessment of whether you can continue to act, or is that part of the original um, decision making process? Uh, there sometimes will be a new assessment as to whether, you know, the prospect of appeal one way or the other, whether it's being made by our client or uh, by our opponents is one that we think we can succeed in. Um, if not, or again, the client's expectations around the outcome of that appeal might be unreasonable. So ordinarily, that'll be the subject of a separate examination. I don't think, though, there's been an occasion where I've ever withdrawn a conditional costs agreement in those circumstances. Again, um, and sometimes that's a bit of pride and a bit of ego perhaps coming into the piece, but we'll always continue to work on that no-win, no-fee basis, even if there is an appeal. Mm, thanks for that insight. Um, so we obviously, um, in my team at Denton's, we work proactively with our clients and um, they'll let us know when they have, usually, not always, um, you know, an issue with someone that might be heading into the um, dismissal territory. And uh, our aim, obviously, is to give them advice to um, deal with those issues in such a way as preferably they're not going to get sued. Um, when that happens, we feel, you know, we've sort of a sense of failure in the sense that, you know, our strategies haven't worked and statement of claim has been served on the client. So we have our own views about where employers often get these things wrong in the perhaps performance management or conduct management context. But what are your thoughts on where employers often go wrong the most when terminating an employee? Yeah, look, there are, there are some obvious ones. Um, kind of your Section 387 of the Fair Work Act factors um, are always front and centre. So, you know, not properly notifying of the employee of the reasons or not giving them an opportunity to respond and um, not having paperwork in order, you know, some contemporaneous evidence of who's making the decision to dismiss and why is um, always important. Uh, believe it or not, it's not uncommon for us, say, in a general protections matter, um, to ask the respondent who the ultimate decision maker was. And sometimes they genuinely just can't tell us because the decision making kind of hierarchy wasn't clear and the paperwork wasn't clear. So that's always a, a surprise to us and certainly uh, an area that we would look to exploit. The most serious thing that employers get wrong, in my view, is missing an opportunity to resolve a claim before it's even made. I mean, if you're about to dismiss an employee that you know you know is difficult and you know is likely to make a claim 
you know, you can have the best evidence of unsatisfactory performance or conduct. You can adopt the most procedurally fair process and, you know, that employee may still very well make a claim. So I, I don't think in those cases it's a failure on the part of the employer practitioner like yourself. You know, you've given good advice and it might be procedurally sound, but employee still makes a claim. Um, and look, we consult with employees all the time and, you know, some we tell and then that they have no prospect of succeeding in any claim. And for that reason, among others, you know, we'll tell them that we can't act for them. But then in a few months' time, we see their unfair dismissal decision handed down in the Fair Work Commission where they've, you know, inevitably lost. But they've still dragged their former employer through, you know, what can be a six-month process in a no-cost jurisdiction. Um, and in my view, there's always the opportunity to at least try and get ahead of that. And in my view, that's by handing the employee a deed of release at the time of dismissal. Um, and I know what a lot of employers will say when I suggest that, which is, you know, we've done nothing wrong. Why should we have to pay anything or, or offer anything? Uh, but I know I see that to be a really a commercially sound way to operate. I mean, if you're choosing not to do that simply out of you know, principle or ego, that's fine. But a lot of the time, what you're ultimately saying is we'd rather spend more in time and money contesting a claim than what it might take to settle it. Um, and some employers do this really, really well. Um, and it effectively cuts us as employee practitioners out of the equation altogether. And um, there's, there's one school actually in Melbourne that does this incredibly well. I won't mention their name, but they have a template that I've seen used a couple of times and it's, it's incredibly effective. It's a without prejudice letter that encloses a, a deed and it's handed over you know, either at the time of dismissal or maybe at an earlier stage, like a show cause stage. And it just spells out in very simple terms the options that the employee has, one of which is to sign and return the deed. And it explains, you know, what the deed means, it explains what without prejudice means, it explains that the employee doesn't have to sign it, and explains what will happen if the employee doesn't sign it, and explains that the employee should get legal advice, perhaps give the employee a couple of days of paid leave to get that advice um, and explains importantly that if the employee does sign that deed of release, you know, there's no hard feelings and also might express, you know, some level of regret without admitting liability and, um, you know, some level of regret that the situation has become so untenable. And when an employee comes to our firm for advice and they have, you know, a deed of release in hand that has, you know, maybe a couple of months salary in it, you know, depending on length of service, the the vast majority of time, our advice to that client is going to be sign the deed. And, um, you know, not all clients will accept that advice, uh, but a good portion uh, of clients will. Um, and, you know, sometimes clients will say, you know, can you act for me in a no-win-no-fee basis if they dismiss me or if they've already dismissed me, can you bring an unfair dismissal claim for me on that no-win-no-fee basis? And inevitably the answer in that scenario is no. Uh, because I can't guarantee that client that they're going to get a, a better outcome once costs are factored in than what's contained within that deed. Um, so the best advice a lot of the time that I can provide those clients, you know, situation specific, you know, is to sign the deed and, and release their former employer from claims. Um, and I think when, when they've been given a covering letter which explains exactly what it means, why the offer's been made, and it's you know, framed in a, a less combative way, it takes a lot of heat out of the dispute and it makes that decision, I think, for the employee to proceed that much more difficult when there's some type of proposal on the table. And 
But finally, the only other thing that we see that influencers sometimes get wrong is just showing a lack of compassion sometimes. And, you know, employer might have some very strong views about a particular employee that might have done the wrong thing, but I'm not sure that kind of marching them out the door in front of their colleagues like a criminal is a particularly good thing to do. And, you know, that person's just lost their job for, you know, good reasons or bad, and it's a pretty significant moment in their life. And, you know, we often have clients say to us, had they just kind of sat me down and had an honest conversation about why they needed to get rid of me and shook my hand at the end and said, best of luck with things, they tell us we never would have called you. But it was just the the kind of vindictive way in which it was actually executed that has led to, to them coming to meet with us. Yeah, really interesting. Um, a few thoughts there. I mean, yes, the without prejudice process pr- prior to a dismissal, we're a big user of, of that strategy. Um, you know, we always say, oh, I'd hate to receive one of these letters myself, but because it sort of says the writing's on the wall, this is where this is all going. You might want to take some control over things yourself and these are your options. May not be quite as friendly as the, the letter that you're referring to, but um, certainly that strategy is one that's used pretty extensively. So I would say 85% of employment matters that we uh, deal with are resolved in that way. Of course, there's always that employee who wants nothing other than unequivocal vindication and everyone else is wrong except for them. They're probably the the small minority, they, they tend to be the ones that end up in litigation that we just cannot settle. And sometimes it's not even about money. Um, I think the other thing I would say is the employment relationship still is steeped in this sort of master servant type concepts that go back to Downton Abbey days of the turn of the century. And so some employers do take a fire and brimstone approach to misconduct, very black and white. Um, but I think there's some good lessons there from what you're saying, Trent, in terms of um, trying to be pastoral at that point in the employment life cycle. Our difficulty is, as yours probably is too, we're not actually in the workplace. So it's very difficult to gauge what all the dynamics are with middle management and who said what and who's right and who's wrong. Um, So you do tend to obviously get one version of events. Um, But in general, I would say employers tend to be less subjective about all of this because the decision makers are often not directly involved whereas the employee of course um it's their it's their career it's their life that's um under the microscope but um some some good lessons there moving on to um the the risks and i think in some ways you've articulated a lot of these um i mean we often think with employees sometimes a bit surprised that employees elected to do something so serious as file a statement of claim in the in the federal court you know if you take on city hall you've got to be prepared to go all the way sometimes and obviously employers have much deeper pockets than most employees so what are some of the the main risks and it will differ on the type of matter but what are some of the main risks that you talk to your clients about when they decide they want to sue a large company because you've had litigation involving some of the biggest employers in Australia. Yeah, we certainly have. 
And I mean, the risks are probably the same that that all litigants face really can have a disproportionate impact on uh, somebody that's not as well resourced, but it's it's time, money and stress. They come to the three big things that you always lose uh, when it comes to litigation. Uh, but the law, you know, largely remains the same regardless of, you know, where this, we're suing a, a company of 25 employees or 25,000 employees. And, you know, we very rarely will ever turn our mind to the size of the company when we're acting for a client. And I don't think I can really ever remember an occasion where I've said to a client, you know, your employer is too big to, to, to sue or that they should be particularly averse to, to suing because of that size. And particularly with the no win, no fee model, I think we have. And again, that comes back to the levelling of the playing field. And you're absolutely right. Employer might have deeper pockets than our client, but won't have deeper pockets than us. And, and we'll always ensure that that kind of resource disparity doesn't prevent an employee from pursuing a claim. So, you know, sometimes that means we waive fees or sometimes that means we cover the cost of a barrister, but we'll never... Uh, allow a client to be costed out of a proceeding by a, a bigger employer. The risk for us really comes at the other end uh, when we're dealing with smaller businesses. Um, you know, often we're dealing with companies that are insolvent or on the brink of insolvency. Maybe they haven't paid the wages of their employees for some time. And that for us is the bigger risk for clients because maybe that company can't afford to get legal advice or maybe they don't understand the seriousness of the claim that's being made or maybe there just won't be a viable entity to sue by the time we actually get into the litigation. So, yeah, most of the time we're more perhaps aware of the risks that come with the smaller employers than the, the larger employers. And do you find most or do you, do you find a trend where clients have initiated litigation, say in the federal court, filed a statement of claim? Is the intention to go all the way to a judgment or a, a, the majority of applicants thinking, I need to get this to a mediation and that's where I need to settle or does it really depend on, on, on the facts and circumstances? Yeah, it depends on the claim, it depends on the client. Um, sometimes we'll have particularly risk-averse clients that say, I'd like to see this matter resolved early if that's possible. Others are completely gung-ho about having their day in court and we're constantly having to drag them back to the idea of trying to see the matter resolve. Most of the time, if we were to say so which group perhaps dominates, it's the, the ones that want their day in court. And our role is to constantly remind the client of the costs, the time, the stress of litigation. And most conversations that we have with clients throughout litigation is about settlement, just to constantly bring their focus back to the idea that resolving this matter is always going to be better than running it. So yeah, predominantly in the category of wanting their day in court, but it does depend on the client and the claim. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's the same for from from our perspective. Settlement resolution, quick resolution is is really the first thing, and an ongoing discussion that 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 we have. The perception that lawyers love litigation because they can charge lots of money for it, and it is very expensive to defend or run a case, um, is certainly uh, is certainly true. But like I said, you know. Re few clients thank you at the end of a two-year hearing after spending hundreds of thousands of dollars even if they've won particularly in a cost-free jurisdiction so um we're very conscious of of running matters as well um so adverse action i must say is probably one of the the main sorts of 
causes of action that we tend to see um, come through when our clients are, are served with an application in the Fair Work Commission or in the in the federal court. And to be totally honest, some of the claims in this area, particularly from another plaintiff law firm, which I'd like to mention, but I won't, um, uh, you just look at it and you just think, come off it. I mean, you, what you've done is you've gone back scratched your head over five years and thought what is everything that's happened to me in the workplace how can i put that within a narrative of of adverse action and call everything a complaint or an inquiry so at the end of reading a 40 page document there's probably 65 complaints that have been alleged um, when usually there's a fairly solid reason for termination that's happened uh, more recently um, and, and these can be really quite frustrating to, to read. Um, what's your view on um, the general protections framework? I mean, I think it definitely provides more flexibility for applicants to bring a claim, which prior to the introduction, you know, perhaps they may have been um, barred by the unfair dismissal jurisdiction. Um, What's your thoughts on general protections as a, as a vehicle for litigation? I can probably have a guess perhaps about that particular plaintiff law firm that you've, you've got in mind there, but I, I similarly won't do so. Look, I can understand the frustration. I'll say that right at the outset. Um, we actually do a, a fair bit of pro bono work uh, through the Workplace Advice Service at the Fair Work Commission. And we routinely consult with clients who... They say, I've spoken to the Fair Work Commission. They told me I wasn't eligible to make an unfair dismissal claim, but they told me I was eligible to make a general protections claim. And so they go away and they file their general protections claim. And when you ask them, you know, what the basis for their general protections claim is, they say, well, I wasn't able to make an unfair dismissal claim. So the Fair Work Commission told me to file their general protections claim. And then when you actually explain to them what a general protections claim is, they often very quickly realise that they don't have one. Um, so I can absolutely imagine that creates a, a level of frustration for employers. That's just a misunderstanding, I think, on the part of employees. We then perhaps have that other category that you've referred to there when we've got, you know, employee firms that might have a practice of filing and pursuing unmeritorious general protections claims. And, you know, inevitably it's a claim under Section 340 of the Fair Work Act and uh, perhaps doing it on that no-win-no-fee basis. But I think you can spot those claims relatively quickly, but again, understand the frustration there for employers as well. And um, I will always, when I'm first meeting with a client, ask why they think they were dismissed. Um, and if they don't specifically cite, you know, a protected attribute or an exercise of a workplace right, you know, we're not bringing a general protections claim for them. Some will have, you know, a very specific belief that some complaint that they made two years ago was the turning point and that ultimately then prompted the termination of their employment much later. Others just won't know. You know, you'll ask them, why do you think you were dismissed? And they might say, well, you know, my manager just didn't like me from the outset. They had it in for me and there was a personality clash. And I'll tell them, you know, if that's true, this general protections claim that you want to pursue will fail because that's not an unlawful reason for you to have been dismissed. It might be an unfair reason, but it's certainly not an unlawful one. Hmm. Now, I would say that I, uh, I don't necessarily accept that the general protections regime is, say, inherently that much more flexible than, you know, the unfair dismissal jurisdiction. 
and appreciate that we don't have, say, the high income threshold and the minimum employment period that applies. But, you know, in one, we're dealing with the uncertainties around why a particular decision was made, what motivated it. And in another, we're dealing with the uncertainties around what's fair or unfair. Um, and if it's a line ball call, uh, you know, when I'm consulting the client around unfair dismissal or general protections, you know, my preference is always to wear on the side of unfair dismissal. Uh, it's quicker, it's cheaper, it's easier to establish. Uh, we find clients are much more satisfied going through an unfair dismissal process than the general protections process. And, um, you know, the unfair dismissal process allows them to agitate almost any issue of fairness that they want. So I'd say it's almost in that sense more flexible. General protections claim, you know, you're constantly having to narrow the client's focus onto that one issue, what motivated the adverse action. So that can cause a level of frustration that they want to talk about all of these other things to do with fairness and you're having to, to constantly narrow the focus for them. So, uh, yes, there's some additional flexibility in terms of the eligibility requirements, but uh, I don't think a, a rehashing of history or this retrospective analysis in a general protections claim, you know, ever gets an applicant too far. There still has to be, you know, an underlying basis for that claim. There has to be a protected attribute or an exercise of a workplace right in some form of adverse action. Um, and I think when claims are kind of artificially constructed to fit a general protections narrative, they're just they're just never believable. Yes, frustrating that they're made, uh, but in my view, very rarely successful. No judge will accept that some innocuous inquiry from 2021 motivated the employer to dismiss that person in 2023. It just it makes absolutely no logical sense. So, yeah, except there's perhaps some misunderstandings by self-represented applicants and then some employee firms that perhaps misuse general protections claims. But, you know, unfortunately, you're going to have unmeritorious claims in, in every jurisdiction. Mm. Um, and I think it's not helped by the fact that the complaint or inquiry area of law is still somewhat unsettled in the, in the federal court and we probably need a high court decision on it to get a little bit more clarity. Um, and the fact that ultimately um, the credibility of the decision maker will often decide uh, whether the applicant is successful or not. And that's not going to happen until usually the decision maker is in the witness box and it's during the hearing. So, um, yeah, there's often not a lot of contemporaneous documentary evidence as well that supports um, some reasons for dismissal. So, um, there are those retrospective claims that we see a lot of, but there's also those where there's a nexus between the workplace right and the dismissal, and there may be a range of protected attributes that could be relevant. So definitely has its place. Now, I understand the Labor government's looking to enhance protections um, in this area in the near future, particularly for union members. So I'm not sure it's going to get easier for employers to defend these sorts of claims, maybe um, just harder in some in some ways. Uh, now, uh, Trent, on the question of costs, most most employment litigation, whether you uh, are the employee or the employer, and you win, is a cost-free jurisdiction. Do you think that um, that should change? Uh, I don't. Uh, that might be an unsurprising position for an employee practitioner to, to adopt. Um, I'm quite comfortable with the rule that, that parties bear their own costs. I think without that rule, you'd find 
employees would very rarely be in a position to ever bring a claim. The, the benefit in doing so, particularly in, say, the unfair dismissal jurisdiction, would just never outweigh the risk that they'd be assuming. I mean, let's say, for argument's sake, you have an employee making an unfair dismissal claim that's worth you know, maybe $15,000. You know, a respondent might spend $50,000 in costs to defend that claim. And if the employee is unsuccessful, you know, the risk of a $50,000 costs order or, or even, you know, a costs order based on scale, it means the risk would just be too great to chase what by comparison is a relatively low amount of compensation at, at say, 15000 Now, particularly with the uncertainties of the unfair dismissal jurisdiction, we're all just trying to guess, you know, what a particular commission member considers is, is fair on the day. Um, and that problem, I think, is only exacerbated when you start to look at you know, other claims saying that end up in the federal circuit court where, you know, costs just start to, to spiral out of control. I um, also don't know how successful employers would actually be in recovering costs orders, certainly significant cost orders against employees. We're talking about most of the time people that have lost their job maybe haven't secured alternate employment. Let's say they run a general protections claim through to trial in the federal circuit court and their employers spent you know, several hundreds of thousands of dollars, which we, we do see. And they don't have that money on hand. They don't have another job. No garnishee order is going to recover those amounts. So uh, viability perhaps of recovering it is, is pretty slim. So I'm quite comfortable with it. It has a downside, obviously, to applicants as well. You know, take the examples that I provided earlier. We had an employee being paid significantly below the minimum wage in horrific circumstances. Had to run a claim for four years in a no-cost jurisdiction. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it cuts both ways. Yeah, and I think you're right. The ability to recover the costs is basically non-existent unless, you know, um, uh, speaking of an employee who may be unsuccessful, unless it's the CEO of Woolworths or something like that. Um, so onto the bullying, anti-bullying jurisdiction, uh, we seem to have had quite a few of these matters as it turns out, but which is quite uncommon. Um, the use of this jurisdiction has overall um, been less than expected. Do you think that's because more to do with the reluctance of employees to seek external um, intervention in managing the relationship? Or is it that um, fewer employ employees are actually being bullied at work? Oh, look, I, I still think bullying is, is quite prevalent, I'm afraid. So I'm not sure that it's a, a lack of bullying that explains the, the reluctance to perhaps enliven that jurisdiction. And, um, you know, cynically or not, yes, lack of money is certainly a consideration. And, um, you know, our firm will get maybe a dozen inquiries a week from clients saying that they've been bullied at work. And um, if, say, those 12, maybe six have, you know, genuinely been bullied. Um, but then when learning that, they can't recover any financial compensation, you know, some will decide that they don't want to take any action. So, yes, we have to concede money is definitely a factor in making that decision. Um, others are prepared, though, to head through the Fair Work Commission, and usually only, though, once they've exhausted other options. Um, if they feel that they've given their employer a reasonable opportunity to investigate at first instance and, you know, the bullying has continued... You know, usually the employment relationship's fairly broken at that point, so they don't have too many reservations about dragging their employer to the Fair Work Commission or even perhaps reporting the conduct through to WorkSafe. And um, there are some other reasons why employees perhaps don't go through through the Fair Work Commission. Health is is certainly one of them. 
Um, you know, we have a lot of clients that have been um, seriously bullied at work and, you know, that has a pretty significant psychological impact on someone. So often they're just not up for the the fight in the commission and they'll head down the, you know, the paid personal leave route or, or perhaps even the work cover route at that point. Um, and look, we as a firm will sometimes discourage clients from heading to the Fair Work Commission to deal with the bullying matter as well. I mean, we often invite clients to consider the bigger picture of, of what's happening. Um, you know, they might say to us, you know, this person bullied me, my employer investigated, the allegations were unsubstantiated, but, you know, I know I was bullied and I know 10 others have come to me and expressed concern privately about also being bullied. And, you know, often I'll say to that client, and it's not always well received, but, you know, you've given your employer that opportunity to do what in your mind was the right thing. They haven't done that. Do you really think an order from the Fair Work Commission is going to change that? Um, and sometimes, you know, the penny will drop and they'll realise that perhaps the employer has just adopted a particular view about this and that won't change through a commission process. And sometimes then they might turn their mind to, you know, a discussion about separating or even just resigning and finding an employer that um, that they do then want to work with. Mm. Yeah, I must say I've never had an employer that's gone through an anti-bullying hearing and thought, you know what, the employee is right, they really <laughs> were bullied, um, we welcome them back. So um, I don't think any of those employees have continued in employment um, after that point. So it does beg the question of the utility, but um, not to underscore the fact that serious bullying does happen, we are well aware of that. So in relation to remedies, how often do employees actually want to be reinstated in your experience? We do see it obviously on, on applications. Strangely, even when the person has a, another job, we see on LinkedIn they've got another job, but they're seeking reinstatement, um, as opposed to just cutting ties once trust and confidence has been um, destroyed and settling on a financial basis. So is reinstatement, do you think, more tactical than a practical reality of somebody actually wanting to come back to work? Yeah, absolutely. Very rarely does a client genuinely want to be reinstated. Uh, I know there are some practitioners that by default will kind of tick the box for reinstatement as a remedy they're seeking in, in maybe an application that's put into the Federal Circuit Court. And, and to be honest, I've, I've never understood why or how they would do that if instructions are that reinstatement's not genuinely sought. So yes, often that is a tactic and not one that uh, I think should be adopted. I think it's understandable once as an employee, you've been dismissed, you know, it's fairly clear your employer doesn't want you back. So why would you ever want to go back? And so most of the time, you know, that's understood and appreciated and financial compensation is what's being sought. And um, when we do, though, get that kind of rare employee that does genuinely want reinstatement, they they really want it. You know, there is no amount of money in their mind that they would contemplate accepting in lieu of reinstatement. Um, and managing expectations for that client is really tough. Um, you know, I've acted for thousands of employees in dismissal disputes over the years and I can probably count on one hand how many times I've got an order for reinstatement or I've got an agreement for reinstatement. And one did come just recently last week, in fact, but that, again, was was quite rare. Um, I had a, a colleague of mine who uh, years ago got a, a reinstatement order from the Fair Work Commission in an unfair dismissal matter. Um, small business, client went back to work, got sacked on the first day back, and then he's back within the unfair dismissal jurisdiction. So, in my mind, not viable and not something that employees really ever want. 
Yeah, I've definitely had one of those years ago where the person was reinstated and then terminated on their first day and then filed another unfair dismissal claim seeking reinstatement. Um, so, yes, very interesting. And I think from an employer perspective, it's fairly straightforward to produce evidence that the relationship of trust and confidence has been destroyed, which will usually be accepted um, in the context of the commission considering whether reinstatement, which is the primary uh, um, remedy for unfair dismissals, but I think is only ordered in 4% of cases or something like that, I think I noticed. Okay, um, moving on to one of our last um, questions. Starting to hear a little bit uh, about the four day work week um, and right laws about right to disconnect. Um, any views on where we're heading with, with those um, possible proposed laws? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm a massive proponent of anything that brings flexibility to the workplace. Um, I think employers should always consider uh, whether they can offer four-day working weeks or that ability to to disconnect. I, I know it won't be possible in uh, all workplaces, but I think certainly achievable in most professional services firms. And, um, you know, there always needs to be some level of give or take. I don't think employees should necessarily expect to be paid the same if they're reducing down to, say, 0.8 FTE. Um, and I think employees also need to expect that with those types of uh, increased levels of flexibility, there's, you know, inevitably going to be a push for a greater level of, of scrutiny and uh, oversight as to what they're doing, you know, during those standard business hours. But, you know, those are all issues that I think can be worked through between uh, employees and employers. And, you know, this doesn't have to be a, a one-size-fits-all. Some might want reduced hours and that right to disconnect and others might be very happy to do, you know, your standard nine-to-five uh, Monday to Friday. Um, you know, I'm always a little wary of people that cite you know, efficiency and productivity as reasons that we can't have these types of flexible conditions. Um, in my mind, often this idea of pursuing greater efficiency and productivity is really just code for we want people to work more hours in, in more rigid conditions. And I think, you know, as a society, we should be distancing ourselves from anything that encourages you know, more hours of work and, and less flexibility. I think we all work way too many hours in Australia as it is. Um, and I think if we are making those increases in productivity and efficiency, it it should mean that we can afford to do these things like a four-day working week and um, a right to disconnect. And um, so, yeah, I think certainly we should be focusing on those things, not just because it's good for employer for employees, but, you know, good for employers as well in trying to attract talenting what's a pretty tight labour market still. Mm. I mean, in saying all that, I don't necessarily think these things should be legislated. And I think when you start to do that, you can have the opposite effect. You can start to introduce a level of rigidity that actually starts to detract from flexibility. So my preference would just to be have these things dealt with informally at the workplace level without actually having to legislate them. Yeah, sure. I think uh, Tony Burke was talking about these topics actually on Q&A on Monday night, which I didn't see because I was doing work. So like the sound of a four day working week at um, Denton's, maybe we'll put that on the agenda. <laughs> um, which leads me to working from home and um, a lot of discussion at the moment about um, return to office. Uh, we have clients starting to ask about global return to office policies and what they might look like. 
Uh, we've seen one of Australia's biggest employers recently ask that their employees come back to the office 50% of the time, resulting in what I understand the, the uh, employees taking um, some action in the Fair Work Commission to prevent that. Um, what's your views on whether and employees can lawfully insist upon a right to work from home at least some of the time? I think some of the time, yes, they can, but most of the time, no. And the typical lawyer answer there, yes and no. Um, you know, most employees have signed a standard form employment contract that, you know, has a position term in it which says you will work from this office location. So, you know, a direction to work from the office in those circumstances, in my mind, is you know, always going to be a, a lawful and reasonable one. Uh, there are some limited circumstances, though, that we know about where an employee can at least request, you know, flexible working arrangements, and that could include working from home, and, you know, that can be with the term of the contract perhaps allows for that. Um, and we're seeing actually more and more clients come to us um, who are asking for assistance to negotiate the terms of their contract or amend it during a recruitment process. So there is an express right within the terms of the contract uh, to work from home. Um, employees also obviously have the ability to make a request for flexible working arrangements under the Fair Work Act. Um, again, that can be uh, the right to work from home. And we're also seeing a lot of those requests being made recently, uh, particularly with those recent amendments to the Fair Work Act, which kind of now allow uh, those working from home and flexible working arrangement disputes um, to be arbitrated by the Fair Work Commission. So Previously, there was a real resistance from employers to entertain those types of applications, but now uh, we're seeing probably a greater level of cooperation from employers in um, considering and granting uh, flexible working arrangements, including um, those to work from home. And obviously, uh, that's only for a confined uh, set of employees under Section 65 of the Act, and so not the ability for everybody to, to make that request. And also have obviously some protections under equal opportunity legislation to have um, disabilities and parental responsibilities accommodated as well. And that can be used um, to facilitate working from home arrangements as well. And I'm uh, unsurprisingly a massive advocate for, for working from home. That is one thing that I'd love to see legislated, but appreciate there would be some difficulties in kind of working out the mechanics of, of what that would all look like. Um, you know, I can't ever see us as a firm ever directing our employees uh, to have to work from the office and for them to lose that flexibility just, you know, in my mind would be a, a pretty significant loss. So uh, they're entitled to come and go from the office as, as they please. And I, you know, I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, there was a, a case recently, I think, that was making the rounds in the unfair dismissal jurisdiction of um I think it involved IAG and an employee was dismissed who'd been working from home based on their keystroke activity. Uh, and I was surprised that that got the attention that it did because in my mind that was a pretty mundane decision. You know, employers never lost the right to monitor performance and discipline and dismiss underperforming employees that exist regardless of, of where you work. So, you know, it's not as if when you're at work, you've got a manager looking over your shoulder at your monitor, you know, day in, day out to see what you're doing. So, you know, employers don't lose that ability to properly manage their workforce just because people are working from home. So, yeah, I'd love to see that remain post-pandemic. But, yeah, we're certainly seeing an uptake of uh, employers issuing those types of directions and then resistance coming from our clients. Yeah, and I think good point around the flexible work um 
provisions in the Fair Work Act and the Equal Opportunity Act protections, I think a lot of employers seem to be forgetting about those in the context of the, you know, everyone back into the office five days a week mentality, which some, a small minority of employers um, are requesting, albeit the fact that those protections don't cover everybody. But I wouldn't be surprised, actually, if there's some legislation in this area in the future. We're seeing uh, work from home clauses pop up in enterprise agreements um, at the moment. So the union unions are definitely pushing it. Uh, okay, so um, just quickly, Trent, what any predictions from you in terms of uh, areas of disputation that we haven't already spoken about um, that you may see uh, or expecting to see in the future? Yeah, I think maybe three quick ones. Um, flexible working arrangements, again, that's already been obviously something that's hotly contested at the moment. I think will continue to be. Casual employment is another one. Obviously, we've had a lot of change on that front with um, the new definition of the Fair Work Act, casual conversion clauses and the like. And obviously, uh, the Labor government has flagged in its next tranche of amendments to the Fair Work Act some further changes on that front as well. So that's going to be um, still a pretty hotly contested area. And then finally, and unsurprisingly, you know, fixed term contracts, we know um, some prohibitions are coming in towards the end of this year. And, you know, we very often have clients come in, they've been on rolling, you know, successive fixed term contracts for sometimes 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And you'll ask them why, you know, what was the reason that you were given for the fixed term nature of the contract? And they'll say, I have, I have no idea. They hold a permanent required role within an organisation and they just say, this is what my employer does. Everybody's on rolling fixed term contracts. So I think a lot of employers are going to need to assess the impact of those provisions. I think in you know, December they come into effect. So yeah, certainly uh, an area that will be hotly contested. Yeah, I, I actually know someone that's been on a fixed term contract since 1970. <laughs> yeah. Every year, I won't say where, education sector, um, not one of my clients. Okay, final, uh, final, Formal question before we um, check on some of the questions from our listeners. If you could name one thing that really irritates you about how employers defend uh, employment litigation involving your clients, what would it be? Probably two things. Uh, one is just being unnecessarily combative. That's a bit of a pet hate of mine. I'm all for robust advocacy at, at hearings and, and mediations and um, I've probably been described as a robust advocate in that way. But outside of those forums, when you're on the phone trying to resolve procedural issues, uh, you know, cooperation is pretty integral um, in those matters. So when you do get this combative approach, and I appreciate there's a bit of emotion in employment disputes, but just have to take a little bit out of that, I think, to, uh, to act in the best interests of your client. Um, and then the other is, and I've already touched upon this, I guess, to a certain extent, not making genuine efforts to uh, resolve litigation early. Um, and you've mentioned that as well, Paul. Um, it never makes sense to me when you have an employer that, you know, might come to a conciliation in the Fair Work Commission and might get an offer to settle an unfair dismissal claim of five or $10,000. And they'll say, no, there's zero money. You know, they might threaten some cross-claim being made as well at some point in the future. And then they run litigation and, you know, maybe we're instead talking about a general protections claim that ends up in the federal circuit court and they, you know, they spend 12 months of their time and incur the costs with their own lawyers only to then shortly before trial, all of a sudden come up with an offer of 50 or or $100,000. 
And, you know, as employee practitioners, we always, we wonder how that conversation plays out between lawyer and client on the other side. If it's on advice from their lawyer, if, you know, don't offer anything, you know, let's just run this. I, I can't see how that would ever be good advice to give to a client. Um, because there's an opportunity often to settle early at what could be a very small sum, five to $10,000 when legal costs on your end are quite low. And then, you know, in 12 months time, you spend fifty dollars to $100,000 with your own lawyers and then having to find maybe another 50 or 100 to settle the claim as well. So it's probably irritating for us just because we don't often understand how that's happened. Um, you know, I can appreciate an attitude for an employer that says we just will never settle this. And that's a, you know, principled approach and that's fine. I have no qualms with that. But to then go away and settle immediately before a trial is a really poor, poorly thought out strategy, um, I think, from the outset. So that's probably a bit of an irritating factor for us because it makes it harder to settle. You know, early on, if we're talking about small amounts of money in the Fair Work Commission, our clients' costs are low as well, so they're seeing more in their pocket. To get that same amount in their pocket in six or 12 months' time once those costs have been incurred is incredibly difficult. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think the the matters that seem to run for us are where the employee, often it's not money that they want. They want some sort of sense of justice, whatever that means to them, uh, in the court of public opinion and and vindication of their, their rights. And you have no choice but to defend those sorts of things. So that's the thing for me. And I will say too, also um, agree with you, very unhelpful to have aggressive, emotionally invested opponents on the other side who um, can't talk objectively about the claim when you try and ring them up, which I always try and ring my opponent up at least initially to have a discussion about the, the benefits and advantages of, of, a, of a resolution. Really unhelpful when you're basically accused of um, furthering some alleged unlawful conduct on behalf of the employer and reported to the Legal Services Board and not a great way to um, try and resolve a matter with uh, your opponent. <laughs> Certainly not. So very quickly, a couple of uh, questions here that you might be able to answer in um, a minute or so. Um, when it comes to settlements, it always seems that the cost of settling claims goes up when an applicant is legally represented because the defendant has to pay the applicant's legal costs and above the value of the claim. Is that correct? Not always, I'd say. Um, so I'd say we have, yes, occasions where costs become a consideration for the client. They'll need to see more out of a settlement to cover those costs. Again, another good reason to try to settle the matter early. Or as I said, get ahead of it, data release directly to the employee before the employee lawyers even become involved. But there are a very, very large number of matters where we have a client come to us saying, I want a million dollars and that's what I'm going to demand. And we are saying to that client, you won't uh, because that's unreasonable. This is you know, what you can claim. Maybe it's a measure of their lost income or the like. So what I think a lot of employers and a lot of employer reps don't see is that work that us applicant lawyers are doing in the background where we have the unreasonable expectations come to us and we're constantly having to, to temper those throughout the course of litigation. Mm, yeah. I think you've answered this next one. Do you filter claims and reject ones that have no merit or are you under pressure from clients to pursue meritless claims? Yeah, no pressure on, on our end. If a client has an unmeritorious claim, we're not running it. 
and we will we will bounce them. And again, we're in a fortunate enough position to be able to do so. Mm. Yeah, good to hear. Uh, final one, it seems that many general protections claims we get come from applicants who have not met the six month service um, probation and have twisted the facts to support a claim that should be an unfair dismissal claim. Would you like to comment on this? Uh, yeah, again, acknowledging it happens and it can happen through a misunderstanding on the part of the employee or it can happen you know, by reason of perhaps an unscrupulous uh, employee solicitor. Um, but, you know, there can always be very different views about how and why a termination is taking effect. So, you know, one person's vexatious claim doesn't necessarily mean that um, the employee or the employee rep sees it in that way as well. So, yes, it happens. It's an unfortunate part, but that's why we have exceptions to uh, the general rule in Section 570 of the Act. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we have run out of time. So thanks so much, um, Trent, for all your candid insights. It's been really, really fascinating. And um, Thanks to our listeners for tuning in once again. Um, and I'm sure I'll be talking to you again in some forum in the near future, Trent. Thanks a lot for your time. Look forward to it. Thanks, Paul. Okay. Bye, everybody.